Well, good morning. Happy Easter. So glad you guys uh, are here this morning. Uh, maybe uh, through the power of Jesus' resurrection, God will see fit to blow away uh, all of the greenish-yellow stuff that falls from the trees we talked about last week. That's my Easter prayer this morning. Um, Jake Turner, who is our executive pastor over worship and, and weekly ministry operations, uh, was going to be uh, leading with John and Tori this morning, uh, and they began texting about 4.30 a.m. He was having uh, incredibly bad back pain, can't stand right now. Uh, so I came into the, the text conversation about 5.30, uh, so the worship team had to make shifts and changes, um, but uh, be praying for Jake if you will. Also, if you need more time uh, with that connection card, just keep filling that thing out while I'm preaching. I'll think you're taking notes anyway, and it'll make me feel better, um, but definitely share your prayer requests on the back and, and uh, fill out that giving envelope if you give on Sunday um, as opposed to online or uh, by text. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. If you've got a Bible with you and want to be turning there, I'm going to give you a moment to do that. The words will be up on the screens as well. Easter uh, every year is an interesting, it's an interesting time. I found myself yesterday wrestling with whether I should go buy a pastel shirt. True story, because it's just like, it's not me. It's not the colors I tend to wear. Some guys, some of you can pull that off well. Uh, some of us can't. Uh, as the day progressed and I got more tired, I cared less, so I didn't do that. Uh, but if you, if you watch much TV, you'll notice this time of year, in the four to six weeks leading up to Easter, there are all kinds of shows about Jesus, all kinds of documentaries on Nat Geo and Discovery and the History Channel and Smithsonian. And they, they cover all things about Jesus' life. They're, they're wanting to know, who is Jesus? And they've got all kinds of supposed scholars and experts on trying to figure out, who is Jesus? Where, when did he really live? What did he do? What did he eat? Did he recycle? I mean, they have endless amounts of questions looking at Jesus' life. Right? And this morning, we gather hundreds, or, or we join, rather, hundreds of millions of of men and women, hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of men and women around the globe declaring our worship of and our allegiance to a first century Palestinian carpenter who lived 30-something years. Men and women of all different races, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different colors, all different ethnicities, worshiping as one today and declaring that this man who lived so long ago was not just a man, but was indeed the Son of God. If you go to Google and search Easter, I did it a couple of days ago. If you just type in Easter, um, I know I made it at least four pages in with no mention uh, or, or no image of Jesus. It was all rabbits and bunnies and pastoral colors and eggs and all of those other kinds of things. And it should cause the thinking mind to, to ask the question, what is this day really all about? I mean, every year the church swells and then contracts at Easter. We swell, we contract. What's Easter really about? You know, across my years as a follower of Jesus, um, growing up in the church and then to my uh, surprise and hesitation for a long time, uh, sensing the vocational call of God into Christian ministry, 
I began to notice two distinct and different groups within the church. And it was startling to me, and even as a young pastor, it was deeply unsettling, and I began to look back and realize these two groups had been in my home church growing up as well. Uh, the, the first group is very active in church. They know their Bible very well. Uh, they take their personal righteousness seriously. And yet they're mean. And they're condescending. And they're judgmental. And you don't want to stand between them and whatever they want. You, you don't want to be between them and what they want to get. But there's a second group, and this second group is active in church. This second group knows their Bible well. This second group takes their personal righteousness seriously. And they're defined by joy. They exhibit grace and mercy. They're patient. They're self-sacrificing. They put the needs of others before themselves. They're quick to pray with you, quick to celebrate with you. Uh, when Sharon and I were getting ready to move out here in uh, the end of July, toward the end of July, I got in contact uh, with Stuart Van Hooser, the chair of the personnel team here. And Stuart spent his lifetime in law enforcement and has seen a great deal of the worst that humanity has to offer and seen it over and over and over. And as I got to know Stuart prior to moving, you got to know him once we got out here, uh, I found him to be a man captured by God's grace who in spite of all that he's seen and all that he continues to see, exudes a sense of joy and trust in Christ, a sense of awareness of the goodness of God's creation and the ultimate trajectory of the world, quick to throw his arm around me and pray for me and pray with me. Got to know Dan Smith, the chairman of the deacons here. Dan, filled with joy, always smiling, willing to be patient with me, with you, sacrificial, Nobody's perfect, right? But two distinctly different groups. And it calls me to wonder, what's the difference? What's the difference? And we're going to let God answer that this morning. And as he answers that, I think we're going to see in reality, not just what the difference in these two groups is, why one tends to end up this way and one tends to end up this way, but ultimately what Easter is really all about. And I'll tell you, the two groups know no age limits, right? Both groups exist in their 20s and 30s, their 40s and 50s, their 60s and 70s. What's the difference? Let's look at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2. I'll read uh, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll go back. I'll pray for us. We'll go back and work through this passage some. But I just want to say a, a word about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a, was a major city in the first century Mediterranean world. In Paul's day, it was a diverse city. It was a city very pluralistic in religion. It was a city of multiple cultures and races and ethnicities with poor and rich, and all of these were found in the church at Ephesus. Let's read the first ten verses of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh 
and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's take a minute and pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask you, I plead with you, don't let us come in here and just do another Easter service. God, don't let us come in here and sit together in your presence and leave unchanged. God, I pray that you do what only you can do, what no amount of human gifting, human preparation, human skill can do. God, take your word. Holy Spirit, fill it. Move it from our minds to our hearts. Interrupt us. Remake us. Transform us. God, I pray that right now in this room, among those who need a relationship with you, God, who stand outside of your saving grace, God, that they would not leave this room that way. God, stir the affection of our hearts for you. I ask this in Jesus' glorious and powerful name. Amen. All right, let's, let's look at this passage because what we're going to find and what we're going to see as it relates to, to Easter and these two groups is where we were, where we were when we first encountered Christ, what God has done, and how God has done it. How God has done it, where we were, and where some of you are now this morning. As you listen, let's look back at verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Let me pause there. Paul is addressing the church in Ephesus. Uh, but at this point in his argument, if you know the flow of the book of Ephesians, he begins to speak to one group within the church. The church there primarily made up of Gentiles and Jews coming together in a radical way that you and I don't understand. Think segregation and think desegregation. All of a sudden they're, they're worshiping together, learning to trust one another, to love one another, learning that Jesus Christ is more and better and greater than any distinctions or differences they have. And right here, Paul's talking to Gentile believers. All of us likely in this room would fit into this category. Those who were without the law, those who were not Jews by birth. And he says, you Gentiles, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And here's what's funny. You and I think that we're free. We really do believe that. We don't understand that prior to Christ, we're dead. We are controlled by the powers and principalities of this world. 
We're enslaved to ourself and to the forces beyond us that control those without the power of God living in their hearts. But Paul doesn't just stop at the Gentiles. When he says in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, he shifts to dealing with his fellow Jews, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul says not just Gentiles were absolutely lost in their own sin. We, though we had the law, and were the covenant people of God, were lost in our own sin, seeking to gratify the desires of our own flesh. And we were absolutely deserving of God's wrath in our sin and transgression. We don't, like, we don't like to think about that. We don't talk about that today. Our culture, our wider culture, has no categories for that which is good and right and true and that which is evil, dark and destructive. We can't, we can't th- there's no category for evil. So whenever something evil happens, we've got to figure out who, who else to blame for it. Who else might have been responsible for it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is where we all were. This is where everyone outside of Christ is. It's a level playing field. doesn't matter how much education you have or how much money you have. We said a few weeks ago whether your bank account's super full or the bank's calling offering to close it for you. Right? Just doesn't make any difference. We are deserving of God's wrath. Several years back, our um, oldest son, Cade, who is 14 now, uh, was nine years old, and we were gone on a little short trip for spring break, and we were sitting at a barbecue restaurant for lunch. We were eating, and we'd finished our meal, and Cade looked up, and he said, Hey, Dad, can I have dessert? I deserve dessert. And I said, Deserve dessert? You deserve death and condemnation. Like, that's what you deserve. By God's grace, you've been given new life in Christ. And by your earthly father's grace, you're going to have dessert. He's like, Dad, you know, don't make it theological. I was just kidding. you got to teach him when you can, right? This is where we are. This is where we are, Paul says, by nature. By nature. What does he mean by that? He means, for any of you parents, that, that people are born with the propensity to sin, and the minute that they can choose it, they choose it, right? Only people who are so far removed from having their own children in their home say things like, I love kids, they're just so innocent. They're not innocent, they're foul. And as parents, you love them anyway, like God loves us. We have twin toddlers, two-year-olds, Zeke and Zane. Sometimes one of them will get frustrated with the other one, and they'll just bite them. They didn't learn that from Sharon and me. Like, they've never seen Sharon get frustrated at me and bite me. They certainly haven't seen me get upset with Sharon and bite her. It's a good way to wake up dead as a husband, right? Sometimes they'll get frustrated at the table or there may be something they don't like and one of them at at one time will just throw it off in the floor. They didn't learn that from us. I've never thrown anything my wife made off into the floor. It's in them already. They're deprived little sinners at that age. And I pray that Christ will make himself known to them one day and save them and redeem them. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. This is where we all were. But in verse 4, he begins to say what God has done. And can I just tell you that verses 1 through 3 should humble us? 
verses 1 through 3, when we understand them, not just cognitively, but they make their way into our hearts, should stop all of this, all of this foolish judgmentalism and faux wrath that people inside the church express toward those outside the church. That those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus have such a tendency to express to people who don't look exactly like us, don't think exactly like us, don't vote like us, don't talk like us. If you can remember where you were when God found you and what he's done, maybe, maybe it'll release some of that garbage from your heart and your mind. Let's look, beginning at verse 4, at what God has done, verses 4 through 7. But... Because of his great love for us. Now, what was it that prompted God to move? Does Paul say that in spite of his desire to absolutely destroy us, he relented? It's not what Paul says. But I submit that some of you still understand God that way this morning. That his primary posture towards you is anger and judgment. God will judge sin. We do store up in us the coming wrath of God, but God's posture toward his world, his word says again and again and again from the glory of creation and beauty of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 to the beauty and the glory of God making and renewing all things and making all things new through Christ in Revelation 21. God's primary posture toward his creation and the fallen human beings he so seeks to redeem is love but because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ he made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions it is by grace you've been saved. It is by grace, by this favor of God poured out actively on you through Jesus Christ that you can't earn, you can't merit, you don't deserve, you can't retain through effort, you can't expand by being good. Words like love and mercy and grace continue to characterize God throughout Scripture. God made us alive when we were dead in transgressions. Paul says it differently in Romans 5, 8. He says that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, you didn't clean yourself up first, right? You didn't take a shower and promise not to cuss and put on a tie. And then God said, well, that's impressive. I'm going to save you. You look like you're worthy of my team. Friends, God doesn't need anything from us. He's self-sustained in his own glory and joy and grandeur. That is the sovereignty of God. Paul says, when you were dead, when you were lost in your transgressions and sin, God made you alive. If God's the one pursuing you because you're dead, right? Dead people can't pursue anything. How many of you have been to at least one funeral? Anybody? Yeah. Some of you are like, all right, my age, just a hobby, you know, every other week. Yeah, I've done a lot of funerals across my years as a pastor. No one's ever gotten out of the coffin midstream and said, nah, let's go to lunch. Right? Dead people don't do anything. So if it's God who comes to us when we're dead and makes us alive in Christ, who's the active agent in our entire redemptive process, us or God? 
It's God. God initiates it. God preserves it. God brings about the transformation as you walk in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. But you can't change yourself. Anybody taken a good run at that and failed? Any of you tried to change your spouse and failed? Yeah, so the rule of the road is you, you, you work on yourself with God's mercy and you pray for your spouse. That's, a, that's how that goes. We can't change ourselves. We can't change anyone else. God, by His grace, God's grace stands over and above anything you've ever done and anything that's ever been done to you. God's grace stands over and above anything that's going to happen in your life or mine. God holds the future in His secure and sovereign hands. He's never caught off guard. He's never shaken and stumbles and falls off his throne. Has to get back up. He never has to call an an emergency meeting of the Trinity. Jesus, Spirit, come over here. You can't believe who was just elected. Right? He never, this never happens. Grace always wins. The riches of God's grace, Paul says, are incomparable. Incomparable. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Not the incomparable riches of his judgment, not the incomparable riches of his anger, not the incomparable riches of his wrath, but the incomparable riches of God's grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. How many, how many of you are able to hold on day by day to the, fa- the fact that God shows you kindness day in and day out through Jesus Christ? That God shows you kindness. That's the understanding, that's the truth that begins to change your heart, that awakens a human heart. And don't, don't miss the pronouns, don't miss the language here in verses 6 and 7. Several times Paul says, us. God raised us up. He seated us with him. God's incomparable riches of his grace are expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's a a plurality of it. It's us together. It's the church gathered. One of the, the, the great distortions of the gospel that we've made in the West is we have so individualized it as to have ripped out any truth about how and what God's ultimately doing in Scripture. God is saving a people for himself. He's saving a people that will inhabit the new heavens and new earth. And to be saved is to be saved into the people that God is saving. It's to become a member of the covenant community of God, expressed only on earth through local communities of believers. The Bible knows nothing of individual believers who say they love Jesus but don't like the church. Can I tell you, a lot of us who love Jesus and haven't liked the church a whole lot have stuck it out, right? You know why we don't like the church sometimes? Because we're in it, right? You're the problem with the church. I'm the problem with the church. But the church is God's choice. It's like not liking somebody's kid. They may not like them a whole lot some days either, but they're theirs, right? The church is this beautiful, powerful magnificent display of what God's grace is building in a people when many become one. And with one heart and one voice, they declare the worship of God and allegiance to him through Christ. 20th century scholar F.F. Bruce said that throughout time, 
and in eternity, the church, the society of pardoned rebels. Isn't that a great phrase? The society of pardoned rebels is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. I've said it before and I'll say it over and over and over and over. There is nothing like the local church when the local church is being what God has called us to be. When our eye is on him, when we are making, as the Apostle Paul said, the gospel of first importance and the supreme value, there's nothing, there's no place like it in the world. Where were we? We were lost and broken and dead in sin. What has God done? He's made us alive in and through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ walked out of the grave. It couldn't hold him. It's held everyone else I know, but not Jesus. Jesus said in and through me, death doesn't get the last word. COVID doesn't get the last word. Your obnoxious neighbor doesn't get the last word. You don't get the last word. I don't get the last word. The grace and beauty of God in Christ does. How has he done it? Look at verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Paul's not referring back to the grace there, he's referring to the faith there. The faith that you have to place your trust in Jesus Christ is in and of itself a gift from God. You've got nothing to brag about. You have no reason to look down on anyone because the very faith that work in you has been given to you by God himself. You can't claim any title to it. There's nothing you're going to stand before God about, uh, before God with one day and boast about. Yeah, but you can't believe what I did, Lord. But I did say yes to you, right? There'll be none of that. All glory and all honor goes to God. Not by works, Paul says, so that no one can boast. So who can boast? No one. No one. Verse 10. Don't miss this. Little, uh, little connective words like for matter so much. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance to do. You aren't just saved to sort of swim around in the bucket of the church and be dumped out at your funeral. You're saved into the redemptive work and mission of God on earth. I'll tell you, I think we absolutely struggle to believe to believe that we are saved by grace through faith alone. We can say it, but I think we struggle to believe it. Grace alone, not grace in baptism, not grace in Bible study, not grace in good dress, not grace in not drinking alcohol, not grace in not cussing, not grace in your quiet time. Grace alone. Grace alone. And that makes some people nervous. They'll say, well, if, if you keep talking about grace alone, people are just going to use that to do whatever they want. Well, I submit to you, then you don't understand grace. You've never understood your absolute eternal guilt before God and what it means that he's wiped that clear in Jesus Christ. You've never felt the burst of freedom and joy and delight that comes in that. But let me tell you what, what I think I heard a, a lot of my life. I don't think I heard it so much directly as indirectly, but it was the message I heard. Is that we're saved by grace through faith, and then we work real hard. Right? 
saved by grace through faith. Now work real hard. Work real hard. Don't, don't sin. We don't want to sin. But make no mistake about it, Romans 6 says, God's grace covers your sin. You can't out-sin His grace. You can't out-sin His grace. Which should be good news. Half of you fought on your way here this morning. Don't look at your spouse. Like when you look at your spouse, right? But you do. Roll up here all angry, you know. Ah, stop that. Shut up. We're going to worship Jesus. You open the door, the greeter's like, good morning. Hello. Happy Easter. And to you. Right? Would anybody in here with me raise your hand and say, you are still a work in progress? You are still someone that God is working on? That you find yourself at times saying, I can't believe I reacted to that that way. I can't believe I said that again. I can't believe that was my response. I thought I was past that. It is not saved by grace through faith alone and then work real hard. It is saved by grace through faith alone. It is walk with the power of the Spirit in sanctification by grace through faith alone. It is held by God through all of life and into eternity forever with Christ by grace through faith alone. Nothing else. Nothing else. Christianity is not religion. It's not good advice about what you need to do to reach ultimate peace or get yourself back to God. It is the declaration, the proclamation of something that has been done. It is good news about what's taken place in history that really has made all things different. There really is an active force in the people of God changing the world. So many things that we take for granted trace their roots back to the church. You'll find more churches named after saints, or more, of course you would, more hospitals named after saints. Than anything else, more hospitals supported by Christian faiths than anything else. Orphanages, senior care centers, educational institutes. This is the power of God in his world, making all things new through his people in his time. And in Paul's day, the religious people would say this. Even in the churches Paul would visit, they'd say, place your faith in Jesus Christ, live the life that God's called you to live, and you will be saved. Now Paul didn't, he didn't differ with those three things, but he differed with the order. And the order matters. Paul would say, no, 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 no. Place your faith in Jesus Christ by God's grace. Then you will be saved and are saved at that moment. Then, by God's grace and power, you begin living the life that God has created you to live. Church, God's not trying to take the fullness of life from you. He's trying to give it to you. You'll never be fully human running from your creator. Let me give you an Old Testament, New Testament picture of this. Old Testament Isaiah given uh, to the prophet Isaiah some 800 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 53, verse 5, says, But he, but he, this, this picture of the coming Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. 
New Testament picture some of you will know by memory, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we earn. That's what we're putting in for. That's what we're requesting by our active rebellion before God. But the gift of God, the gift. You don't earn gifts, you're given gifts. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. This is the message of Easter. But everything else in our world says no. Dance for it. Work for it. Achieve it. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said that our hearts are hardwired for works righteousness. The idea that what we do determines how God feels about us. Don't we struggle with that? Don't we struggle with that? But the truth is that all that God offers, can, it can only be received. can never be achieved. And some of you in here this morning, part of why you feel like you made some kind of decision for Jesus at some point in your past and they baptized you real fast and punished you out into the church hoping you'll become a disciple on the other end by accident. And since then you've been so disillusioned. You're like, I don't believe in anyone or anything else, but I thought this would be so much more than it is. Can I submit to you that possibly you've never really heard the gospel? You've never heard the beauty and the power of the message that God has in Christ done it all. And you can't achieve anything before him. You can only receive it. Now, grace isn't opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. It is opposed to earning. In fact, the Bible says that outside of Christ, some of you will know this, outside of Christ, all of our religious acts and our devotion are just filthy rags before God. That's disheartening. The Bible says that outside of Christ, the best that you have to bring to God is like a filthy, stanky rag to him. Happy Easter. But in Christ, you are God's treasured possession. I mentioned at the beginning these two groups. These two groups. They've been in church together. Both groups know a lot of scripture. Both groups are committed to their personal holiness and righteousness. And yet, they are so distinctly different when you encounter them. I submit to you that the difference is simply grace. That the latter, by God's mercy and goodness, have discovered and taken seriously what Scripture says about God's grace. And the former are still caught in this cycle of trying to earn. They're still caught in performance-based righteousness. They still believe that ultimately God is angry with them, not pleased with them in Jesus Christ. They've never understood the gospel, the grace of God poured out, through Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week that Tim Keller said this, and I think this is a distinctive difference here that helps us understand. He said, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. As the band makes their way back out on stage and we prepare to respond and worship this morning to the glory and the goodness of what is made available to us in Jesus Christ, I pray that for some of you, you would know that Good Friday and Easter Sunday declare to you that Jesus has done it all. He's done it all.
There's nothing you can work for or work toward. But you can receive this gift. And I pray that you'll do that this morning. I pray that those of you sitting in here who know, who have the Spirit testifying in your heart right now, the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, this is me. I've been playing this game year after year, decade after decade, and I've never just let go. I've never submitted myself to God. I pray that this morning you would do that. What better day than Easter Sunday? What better time than on the heels of this last chaotic and crazy year to finally lay down your arms? If that's you, I hope you'll do that this morning. It's not complicated. It's not a rogue prayer you repeat after someone else like some kind of seance. It's simply an acknowledgement that, yeah, you're broken. You're broken and you can't fix it. But you believe that Jesus is who God said he is. And you believe he can. And you're done trying to be your own God and trying to fix yourself. And today you just say, yes, Lord. Yes. I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, I hope you make that decision. And if you do, take a minute. Take a minute. Say yes to God and turn that connection card over. And on the back, on the back, on the top left, there's a little box there that you can check that says that today for the first time, truly, you gave your life to Jesus Christ. I hope you'll mark that box. And let Easter Sunday not only be the day of Jesus' resurrection, but the day of your new birth in Christ. Do that. Give us a chance to follow up with you this week to pray for you. I pray this morning that all of us in Christ can hear God's love for us and rest and relax. Delight yourself in Him and hear again His good word to you that you have no one to impress. You have nothing to prove. That all that is in Christ is yours through God's magnificent grace. Let's stand and pray this Easter morning. Father God, you are so good to us. Lord, we declare this morning with one voice that we love you. God, we trust you. Help us to love others the way that you have loved us. God, I pray right now in this holy and tender moment, God, that those in this room that have not yet encountered and submitted to your saving grace would do that. God, that they would join the family of Christ. God, they'd be added to your church. That their names would be counted among those written in the Lamb's book of life. Stir our hearts, God. Stir our affections to you. God, may we this morning find you not useful, but beautiful. I pray all this in Jesus' sufficient and glorious name. Amen.